0: for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts.
1: In the recent theatrical production Hamilton, King George III is portrayed as a camp tyrant. He has been described as the Mad King the king who lost America, and the king who humiliated England. However, one historian disagrees. Andrew Roberts not only believes George was not a tyrant, but he questions the entire justification for American independence. Roberts joins me to discuss his latest book, a biography of who he describes as the most misunderstood English king. I started our discussion by asking Roberts why he chose King George III as his subject.
2: I chose him because, as my subtitle of this book points out, he is Britain's most misunderstood monarch. He's down there with sort of Richard II and King John uh, in terms of his historical reputation. And he shouldn't be. He should be uh, right towards the top. He was actually a. Uh, a serious and substantial figure who was nothing like the king that he's been made out to be by radical, Whig politicians and liberal historians.
1: Where does this misunderstanding come
2: from? Well, literally that, the the fact that um, the history was written very largely in the 19th century by the Whigs and and their historians, their sort of pet in-house historians. It wasn't really until uh, much later on in the 20th century that people were able to have another look at him. And since 2015, the Queen has allowed uh, some 100,000 pages of his correspondence and papers to be available. And they're brilliantly curated by the Georgian Papers Programme at King's College London. And they show a completely different King from the one that that has hitherto been denigrated.
1: Can you talk about the modern perceptions of George III? Uh, You mentioned Hamilton in your book. How is he seen today? Yes, I think people know three things about him. Uh, The first, that he had
2: porphyria, this illness, the set, which is the thing that drove him mad. The second thing is that he was, his obstinacy essentially led to Britain losing the American colonies. And also that he was, as Hamilton the Musical, you mentioned, pointed out, but also the Declaration of Independence uh, stated, a tyrant. And I have to tell you that none of those three things are true. He didn't have Porphyria. It certainly wasn't his fault that uh, we lost the American War of Independence. His, uh, his generals and his admirals and the cabinet ministers and the government have bear far greater responsibility for the defeats there, even assuming that that was a winnable war in the first place. And he certainly was not a tyrant. Of the 28 charges leveled against him in the Declaration of Independence, only two of them are true.
1: And where does this idea that he's a tyrant come from? You talk about the Declaration of Independence. It's something to do with it's, the it's, American it's story, in there. Isn't
2: it? It's in there. He's, it, uh, there's a, a phrase about, about his, uh, his tyranny and how he was a prince unfit to rule a free people. I mean, the first two paragraphs of the Declaration of Independence are, of course, absolutely sublime. They, they use Shakespearean language. They, um, you know, raise up the concept of the political... human being. It's a a wonderful first two paragraphs. But then when Thomas Jefferson got into the nitty gritty and tried to prove that George was a tyrant, in fact, he only really proved that he was exactly the same as any other of the last nine sovereigns who ruled over um, American colonies.
1: Is the American independence story then basically based on a myth?
2: Not really, no, because of course, the two charges that were true in the Declaration, the one that the British had the right to tax the colonists and that uh, Parliament had the right to legislate for the colonists do in themselves, in and of themselves justify the American Revolution. But I'm arguing that this was for self-government and for autonomy and independence, not to escape some kind of oppressive regime because it simply was America in the 1760s and 1770s was one of the freest societies in the world. And George III didn't do the kind of things that 18th century tyrants do, like um, impose large troops in towns, except for in Boston from 1768. He didn't do that. He didn't close down any newspapers, arrest any editors, stop the Stamp Act Congress or the First Continental Congress from taking place, which he could have done. You know, he was not, he did not behave like a tyrant in any way.
1: You've written your book to try and portray uh, George III in a different light to what people w- would normally assume or believe. Where did this come from? Have you had access to new documents? Have you used uh, different sources? Why have you suddenly come up with this new idea of George III?
2: The major source has been the Georgian Papers Programme, which really is an extraordinary sort of avalanche of new material that the Royal Archives have put out. And it really does show a very different kind of king. For example, in the papers there, There's an essay that he wrote in the 1750s when he was Prince of Wales, which held up the concept of slavery to execration, was his word. He believed it was ludicrous and absurd any arguments trying to defend slavery. And that was why he never bought or sold a slave in his life, never owned a slave, never invested in any of the royal African societies or companies or any of those bodies that uh, did such things. It was why he signed the legislation that abolished the slave trade. And yet he's accused of being a tyrant in a declaration written by people, 41 of the 56
1: signatures of whom were indeed slave owners. And you also mentioned that they originally accused him for slavery, right? That was one of their original accusations.
2: Yes, exactly. Well, um, the slave trade. And so the hypocrisy of that is, is obvious, I think, to all. Having said that, of course, it's a propaganda document. They're fighting a war you don't praise your enemy during a war. So it's perfectly understandable why the founding fathers should have sought to portray George III in the way that they did. It's just that now, 200 years later, we can get beyond that and see, um, in fact, that this was a highly cultured monarch, he was a Renaissance prince in many ways, and he was an absolute true believer in the British constitution and the Enlightenment.
1: And of course, it's not just the American uh, scholars and, and people fighting for independence who criticised George III. Uh, as you mentioned earlier on in the interview, he's also seen in, the, in Britain as the man who lost the American War of Independence, the man who lost America. How much truth is there in that? Can he be blamed whatsoever for losing that war?
2: Not really. I mean, he, he didn't do anything to try and hold it back, of course. Uh, he went, He was a constitutional monarch. There's only one point in his whole career and his whole reign that he appointed a prime minister who didn't have the support of the House of Commons. And on that occasion, it was because the radical Whigs were trying to nationalize the East India Company and draw all the power of the of East India into their own hands. He stopped that. And in the subsequent general election, William Pitt, the younger, won uh, against the radical Whigs. So it was sort of justified ex post facto, as it were. So, yes, you have this man who did definitely go along with Lord North and the, and the cabinet and the government and the majority in the House of Commons and House of Lords that wanted to go to war rather than allow America to secede. It's not until 1905 that you have a moment in history where a colony can secede, does secede with Norway and Sweden. I mean, up until that point, uh, secession meant warfare, you
1: know, and I don't think that therefore a daughter third can be particularly personally blamed for that. Can you give people some kind of context of the time in terms of how much power George III did have as monarch? You mentioned that he appointed prime minister against the majority of the House of Commons once. What kind of powers yeah. did he have and what powers could he have used but didn't use?
2: Well, he, he could have vetoed legislation in the House of Commons. He could have just refused to sign um, an act of parliament, which he never did. As I say, he tended to appoint prime ministers who could command majorities. He had the powers of peace and war and, and actually he didn't exercise those ever against the government's uh, will. He actually had, uh, although he had a great deal of power, needless say, and much more than even uh, Queen Victoria, let alone our present queen, he used these powers on the whole wisely and he had less power, the Harvard Law Journal has pointed out last April, than the present American president has.
1: Wow. It's also interesting that, you know, George III himself is an interesting character, but the time that he was alive and the wars and the transformation of Britain and British society is also fascinating. What kind of role did he play within the major events during his lifetime? For example, the Napoleonic Wars, you know, he was king. Well, he was very,
2: he was, he was impressive in the Napoleonic Wars in that he constantly opposed Uh, making peace with Regicide France. What what finally defeated Napoleonic France was the way in which the uh, coalition stayed together, very often with British money. When uh, uh, the Austrians were at war with France for 108 weeks, the Prussians for 53 weeks, the um, Russians for 55 weeks, I'm so sorry, months in each case, it was the British who were in the war for 242 months that um, really kept that coalition uh, going. And, of course, ultimately, the, uh, the Russian campaign of 1812 was the thing that broke Napoleon's military might. But his economic uh, power was already in decline because of the uh, British blockade uh, and this refusal to make peace, which was very much something the king supported.
1: And during times of peace and times of war, you know, especially in times of hardship, even today, people look up to their monarch and draw inspiration, hope. You know, we've got a collective sense of identity in Britain. There's this sort of stoic institution that will always be there, no matter what. How did his subjects view himself? Was he a popular king at the time? He wasn't popular right at the beginning. He installed a prime
2: minister, his former uh, tutor, the Earl of Bute, to be prime minister, who was Scottish. And this was only, uh, this was less than 20 years after the Jacobite rebellion which had marched down as far as Derby. And so so that was tremendously unpopular. It was also totally unfairly assumed that his mother was sleeping with the Earl of Butte, the Prime Minister, and that undermined him a great deal as well, even though it was completely untrue. And so uh, so he did. there were occasions, especially during the Wilkesite riots in the late 1760s, when he had mud thrown at his coach and stones thrown at it as he was going to open Parliament. However, later on uh, in his uh, in his life, and especially as he became older and older and finally the oldest and longest reigning king in British history, he became tremendously popular and the jubilee of 1809 that was uh, celebrated throughout the country was a real national celebration.
1: Why was that? Why did he become so popular?
2: Well, because he was so steady. Uh, he was frugal in his uh, Manners he was uh, prudent financially, unlike his son George the Fourth. He was a uh, a patriotic monarch. The first thing he said when he opened parliament was uh, the, the, on the first occasion was uh, born and educated in this country, I glory in the name of britain so uh, although his predecessors had been German, indeed some hadn't even spoken English, he spoke English and without a German accent, and that made him popular. He was somebody who had this tremendous sense of what the people were interested in. They they nicknamed him Farmer George because he was interested in agriculture. He wrote articles on manure and crop rotation and things like that. And at that stage, 80% of the country drew their living from agriculture in some way or another. Um interestingly he didn't have much to do with the industrial revolution which started in the 1780s. He never went north of Worcester or west of Plymouth, which is quite extraordinary considering that he was king of Scotland and Ireland and elector of Hanover
1: and and obviously uh, had his American colonies and he never really moved outside the home counties. What was the what was the reason for that? Was he not intellectually curious about his his own subjects? Well, he was tremendously intellectually curious, but he was intellectually
2: curious rather than personally curious. He had a collection of 40,000 topographical maps um, in his collection. His library forms the nucleus of the British Library today with his 80,000 books that he collected, uh, lots of them on America, by the way. And so he had this, uh, this intellectual interest it extended to astronomy, he built the world's largest telescope, and uh, the planet Uranus was originally named after him. So he had the, this, this, this interest in
1: things beyond the home counties, but he didn't feel the need to go there. In terms of his contemporary monarchs in Europe, how does he compare? Was, I mean, For example, you know, we talk about the word tyrant, you argue that he wasn't a tyrant, but how does he compare to his contemporaries?
2: Very, very well indeed. He certainly was not a tyrant. When one looks at Catherine the Great killing fifty thousand Russians in the Pugachev uprising, or the uh, way that the French behaved in Corsica, or uh, the way that the Spanish shot the um, people responsible for the uprising in uh, New Orleans, you know there was a, uh, a, a viciousness to the European autocracies that is completely missing in George III, uh, who had enormous trouble um, even making sure that John Wilkes was was arrested and imprisoned. A sort of classic example of the common law defeating any kind of hard authoritarianism. One really does look in vain in those documents that the Queen has made available since 2015 to find any um, desire to be uh, tyrannical at all. And so, uh, so I do, as I say, think he's the most tremendously misunderstood uh, monarch in British history.
1: Do you think the fact that he was a sort of benign king in that sense enabled Britain to become one of the most powerful countries in the world during his reign?
2: Well, they, it's extraordinary that although, of course, we lost the American colonies at exactly the same time, and in a sense, because of that, because of all the loyalists, about a third of Americans were, uh, stayed loyal to him and were forced to leave the, or at least tens of thousands of them were forced to leave the country. They went off to Canada and India and places in Africa and so on and started the, the wider British Empire, the next British Empire, which by the time George III died, had become the largest the world had ever seen. So in that sense, the, the whole story has a happy ending.
1: There's an idea that George is sort of played by politicians at the time. Is there any truth in the fact that perhaps he was manipulated or, you know, you talk about him not being a tyrant, but some people would argue that prime ministers would were able to sort of walk all over him?
2: No, that, that wasn't the case. You're, you're right that that's an accusation that's been made, especially with regard to William Pitt the Younger. I think his major problem really was that there was a but there were very few good prime ministers of all his prime ministers, over a dozen of them. Only uh, William Pitt the Elder and William Pitt the Younger were great men. William Pitt the Younger, unfortunately, by the time he was sorry, the Elder, by the time he was appointed, had such appalling gout that it had uh, driven him mad essentially, and and sent him into uh, into deep depression. But his relationship with William Pitt the uh, Younger was superb. He was prime minister for 17 years of George's reign. They didn't personally become friends or anything. They never had dinner together, for example, but they respected and admired one another and they saw eye to eye on, uh, on politics. And so, or at least not everything in politics, but most of it. And so really, I think his problem was, George's problem was, that he wanted to take people completely regardless of party or ideology whoever was the best people, most intelligent and and, uh, impressive, persuasive politicians of the day, and appoint them to the cabinet. And of course, the party system didn't work like that in the House of Commons. And uh, so he was constantly up against uh, the Whig establishment. They'd been in power for 80 years, uh, these uh, Whig oligarchs. And they didn't like the idea of the king turning to Tories and turning to uh, independents
1: for ministers. The other thing people remember about George III is, of course, his madness. Can you talk about, you know, in 21st century terms, what he may have suffered with and how that impacted his reign? Yes, for many years, since
2: the late 1960s, the, there's been a complete misunderstanding about his illness, which has been diagnosed as porphyria. And that's what uh, Alan Bennett's play and um, the film of, uh, of the play and so on have all assumed was true, but it wasn't. Um, Modern analysis now uh, completely undermines the porphyria theory, which I'm afraid is largely to do with the colour of faeces and urine uh, that the king produced, which in porphyria makes uh, the faeces and urine a sort of bluish-purple colour, hence the name porphyria. But actually that happened on very few occasions, and it was usually after the king had taken gentium or beetroot, uh, or aloes, uh, which can explain the coloration. But no, no modern doctor thinks that it's uh, still true. It was bipolar disorder, uh, a manic depression that, that he suffered from. And boy, did he suffer. It was appalling. You know, the, uh, the basics of, of 18th century, what they called mad doctors, is uh, it's sort of shocking. He spent an awful lot of time in straitjackets, being uh, held down on his bed or on a chair for hours and hours, sometimes days. He was given cupping in which uh, your, a heated glass is placed on his arms or his legs to bring up boils on his, uh, uh, on his body. Um, these things did no good uh, whatsoever. He was bled on several occasions as well. And he was incredibly courageous through all of this. Unfortunately, he was sane enough in intervals to recognise um, what was going on. So he was the sort of horrified spectator at his own mental
1: collapse. It must have been extraordinary to put the king in a straitjacket and to hold him down. What was that process like? Was that just seen as a you know, very normal scientific practice from the doctors at the time?
2: It was done by the doctor's attendants, you know, who were big sort of burly men who were physically capable of, of restraining him. And yes, it happened an awful lot. I mean, uh, in each of the...
0: for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Four of the last of his bouts of illness. I'm the first historian, I think, to claim that in 1765, he had a prodrome attack, which is a sort of weaker version of what was to come later. And he wasn't, uh, so far as we know, he wasn't uh, put in a straitjacket on that occasion. But um, he spent the last 10 years of his life mad and also blind and deaf and senile. So it actually was a, a, a tremendously, uh, it's, a, it's a story of great pathos, the final chapter of my book, I, I think.
1: Well, as a, an historian, it must be interesting to write uh, about such a long period of time in which your subject is going through such difficult mental health problems. Did you find that a struggle?
2: Really no. Um, it's I mean obviously you don't write about George III unless you know a little about how you're going to deal with this. I was helped enormously by uh, Sir Simon Wesley, the professor who is also the President of the Royal College of Medicine, and he's the only person also to have been president of the Royal College of Psychiatrists as well. so he sort of helped me through the the more uh, technical side of of manic depression and uh, and bipolar disorder and, and why this was what the king actually had. But I also was helped by other people who were experts in Porphyria as well, uh, pointing out that it wasn't Porphyria that he suffered from.
1: Final questions on George III. And just getting back to this issue of America. Do you think that at the time, Britain was more free and had more liberty than those American colonies when they declared their independence?
2: No not really. I, I think that, of course, they had representation. you know uh, Britons were represented in in Parliament, but the Americans also had their own provincial assemblies which uh, which created laws, and which the for most of the time the royal governors got on well with. you know one has to remember that there was there were colonies for one hundred and fifty years before the revolution uh, in America, and the first time in fact in history that America was an independent country, longer than it was a colony was in 1946 and you know this is a very pro-american book essentially because what it proves is that there is such a thing as american exceptionalism there are any number of people in history the israelites against the egyptians the uh, dutch against the uh, austrians the and spanish the italians against the austrians the um, greeks against the turks just any number throughout history of peoples who struggle against an oppressive regime for their independence and sovereignty. But only with America do you have people who revolt and um, stage a full-scale revolution for their independence and sovereignty against a country that's not oppressing.
1: Let's move on to wider discussions of historical revisionism. We chatted before on a different podcast about Winston Churchill, uh, accusations against him of being a racist and a tyrant and a colonializer and all those things. Do you think that we're going through a kind of cultural revolution akin to what Mao instigated in China back in the 1960s?
2: Well, I don't think anyone's going to die um, in the way that... Uh that happened during the Chinese Cultural Revolution. I'm, I'm hoping that they're not going to be dragging out professors and shooting them, uh, at least. But yes, you're right. Of course, there's a, uh, a, a cultural war going on. And it's a great sadness, really. This was not brought on by conservative-minded people. This was entirely brought on by people who want to try to judge the past entirely by the mores of, uh, of the present in a way that just simply makes no sense really philosophically or intellectually but nonetheless they uh, are insisting on doing this and by the way i think that uh, and winston churchill obviously is on the front line of the of this cultural war but i think that uh, there might be a bit of a, a counter revolution going on it strikes me that um, whenever local people are asked whether or not they want the statues of francis drake or or Robert Baden Powell or um, Buller, for example, to be the uh, General Buller in Exeter, to be pulled down. They don't. So I, what I'd like to see is much more referenda, local people being asked what they think about uh, the um, uh, destruction of statues of their local heroes, and uh, and see what happens. Because I'm pretty much convinced now that uh, this is the voice of a very small minority of ultra woke political warriors who do not represent the uh, view of the British people whatsoever.
1: There is an argument from those who may write in The Guardian, for example, who say that these culture wars are irrelevant, that it's completely understandable that oppressed minorities uh, historically should want to remove symbols of that oppression. And they would talk about People who owned slaves or part of the slave trade, Edward Colston, famously um, in Bristol, his statue was torn down by protesters. and they say, "Look, you know this isn't historical revisionism, this is simply being kind to people whose past in, in Britain and in our colonies around the Empire has been a dark one, and uh, it's quite right that people should learn about that dark history, and we shouldn't be lauding." these evil tyrants with statues on our streets?
2: Are you telling me that that Mr Colston was an evil tyrant? Yes, he made money from the slave trade. What did he spend it on? Why did they put that statue up to him? Not because he was a slave trader, but because he spent the money that that he earned from this foul and evil practice on the people of Bristol, on the educational facilities in Bristol. That's the thing that's being commemorated by the statue. Nothing to do with slavery at all. Same with Guy... Uh, at Guy's Hospital, same with Hans Sloan at the British uh, Library. It's the very fact that we who believe in redemption, should really believe in redemption at least, were and are impressed by the redemptive actions of those people in uh, spending their great uh, ill-gotten gains on good and philanthropic things. Frankly, I think that that's a uh, a part of the Christian tradition in this country.
1: There is an argument on the other side of that that says actually it's even more serious than people trying to tear down statues. They would argue that look what you saw in Mao's China and as you say you know that involved tens of thousands of people being killed and uh, you know many others being brutally tortured and sent to camps and and, and, you know the most brutal conditions uh, possible. But you know there are some who say that this isn't just about taking, tearing down statues. It's about sort of trying to kind of brainwash children. It's about trying to rewrite our entire history to a sort of year zero. And it's about trying to restructure our society. Do you think it's more serious than, than it looks on the, on, the, on the outside of just simple protesters trying to remove statues? There's actually something even more serious going on here.
2: Yes, I very much think that. I mean, the, these cultural wars are not just about statues. Of course they're not. They're about national... Uh, educational curricula. Uh, They're about what um, our children are being taught in schools about their great grandparents and, you know, what they did. And uh, and it's an attempt to make us feel ashamed of British past, which is, I think, completely outrageous, frankly, because there's so much more. Of course, there are some things that one should be ashamed of, but they were taught when I was a child. They've constantly been taught the idea that we've had some kind of a whitewashed historical curriculum up until then, uh, now is completely ridiculous. The fact is that things need to be seen in their proper historical context and what is being done at the moment, and, and as you say, this is, this is much more than just statues, uh, is very worrying because ultimately I think that a people who uh, are no longer proud of their past become um, untethered. And, uh, and I don't want that happening in this country because I think there's an awful lot... Uh, to be proud of in the British past, indeed, a great deal more to be proud of than to be ashamed of.
1: Now, you are an historian. You've been writing about history for, you know, if I may say, a relatively long time. Um, you enjoy... <laughs> you, enjoy <laughs> Thank you very you much. Know, you're, you're a very, uh, you know, enthusiastic historian. Um, I, you know, you can tell that you enjoy your subjects and that you're very, um, you know, impassioned, obviously, uh, about, about history. In a sort of wider philosophical sense... Why do you think it's important that we learn about history?
2: Connie, um, Churchill said, didn't he, that the secrets of all uh, statecraft can be found in the study of history. And by statecraft, he didn't just mean uh, you know politics. He meant, uh, he meant the culture of politics as well, the politics of culture, everything. Unless you look in the past and see where we came from and uh, the Things to avoid and the lessons to be learned. Uh, I think, as I say, we'd just be a completely untethered society. But that doesn't mean that we should just assume that everything we're told about history is correct. It's vital to double check everything, to go back to original sources when you can, to find trustworthy historians who are going to uh, present evidence based history and not go down this uh, route of putting the ideology first, and then trying to get the facts to fit into a previously conceived ideology.
1: I'm curious to know what you've seen throughout your career as an historian. Do you think that this is a recent phenomenon of people trying to rewrite history, trying to Make us ashamed of our past. Obviously, we've seen in the news recently the last few years statues being pulled down. You know that's very kind of easy for everyone to see. But has this been going on for a long time? Well, I mean, you get it in revolutions. Obviously,
2: they pulled down a few statues of Lenin in the uh, in the uh, when the Cold War uh, ended and the uh, Berlin Wall came down. You know, it's a it's a well known phenomenon in violent revolutions and, and peaceful ones too. So in a sense, all history is a revision of previous history. It's, um, it's not in the a bit surprising. I mean, I'm, I'm doing that with my George III book. I'm attempting to revise the historical uh, accepted view of, um, of one of the kings of England. So the whole process of history is constantly revising what's been said about uh, the past in the past. But what I think today we've got, though, is a vicious new strain of non-evidence-based history of people who, because they're uh, I know, supporters of Black Lives Matter, for example, want to present Winston Churchill in a way that makes very little sense in terms of the actual evidence that they provide, or at least they don't see it in the overall context of a much wider story, a much longer life, a much, a much broader career, for example. And so uh, I think we have got a, a, to a dangerous moment here where, as I say, only a small minority but a very, very vocal minority because the uh, media uh, loved these uh, stories about heroes being dragged through the dust and which overall I think is not going to uh, be a positive aspect of our national life.
1: It may be a small minority but they've certainly got a loud voice and I think there was a poll that said uh, you know, a sort of sizable chunk of young people didn't know that Winston Churchill was a real person? Some 20%, um,
2: yes, exactly, thought that he was a fictional character. He, and more of them believed that Sherlock Holmes and Eleanor Rigby were real people.
1: <laughs> so, so this idea of, you know, is, are these activists having an impact? Are we teaching history well in schools, for example? You know, as I've been growing up and looking at, you know, with social media and things like that, People my age, you know, kind of early 20s, are sharing things all the time about how awful Winston Churchill is and they're kind of viewing these previous people, British heroes as, as villains. So I think there is, you know, it is having, I think it's having a big, a big impact. Yeah, you're right.
2: Of course it is. We wouldn't be talking about it now if it wasn't. It doesn't mean that it can't be uh, as, as people of your age grow uh, older and are more interested in the past, perhaps. That they can't uh, learn the truth. They can't read books about Churchill and uh, and work out the true basis of it. They might even actually watch that show that you and I did about Winston Churchill and race. That um, <laughs> that's presumably on YouTube, um, and which we I don't suppose need to revise altogether nowadays.
1: Presumably, you speak to young people in schools and 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 uh, you know not just in schools but at different events in in museums and things like that. Do you think that we are teaching history properly on, in the curriculum? And what do you think the best way is to enthuse young people about history? I don't think it's, it's uh, that difficult to enthuse
2: people about history. The stories are so extraordinary. You know, they genuinely are stranger than fiction, uh, many of them. I think that there's a thirst out there for, um, for history. But I just hope it isn't going to be a history that is... Um, based on the, on the ide- ideology of the, of the teachers rather than something that can be um, appreciated by all.
1: And if you had any advice to students, for example, you know, when I was at school, I was growing up with very ideological teachers, particularly, you know, history teachers, I think were probably the most left wing kind of group of teachers in my school, for, for example. Maybe it's just one example. But, um, you know, and when, when I left school, I started reading other books. I started reading your books and other historians' books. And it kind of gave me a different perspective on history than the one that I was given in my classes. If you had any advice to students today, what would it be? Would would you, would you say to them, look, read more widely and try and be a bit more critical about the things that you're being taught? Of course.
2: Absolutely. Yes. Study history, study history. Um, As uh, Churchill said, it's uh, not just history, biography, of course, uh, is tremendously important as well. The two overlap so much. Yes, maybe go beyond the academy, read the books of freelance historians, people who aren't uh, tethered to a particular institution. That might also uh, give you a slightly wider perspective. But overall, just constantly looking again at, at the same story. From different angles has always got to be a good thing.
1: Now this book George Third, is one of many that you've written and many a biography you've written you know we talked previously about Churchill, Napoleon you know and you've written I think it's about Salisbury was that your first one uh, back in the 90s? Not my first one
2: but that was, yeah, that was one of them in the late 1990s, yeah.
1: Yeah, and you've been continued to be published, despite the fact I'd say that, you know, you've got quite conservative opinions. I think you'd argue that, you know, you'd probably agree with that on history. How have you remained uncancelled?
2: Oh, well, I don't know. I might, I might be tomorrow. You know, it, it hangs over absolutely everybody. Uh, I might have said something in this, uh, in this interview that's going to wind up getting me uh, cancelled. I'm not as scared of it as some of my friends and colleagues partly because i have given up bothering to you know try to apologize and i think that if you if you stand by what you say assuming what you say is properly represented and that you believe it then there's not that much that the twitter sphere can do obviously you can be horribly damaged uh, professionally if you say something ludicrous or, or absurd but I'm going to keep my fingers crossed that
1: I don't say it. I don't believe things that are ludicrous and absurd so I can't see why I should uh, say them. What have been the implications of previous attempts in societies, previous revolutions who have attempted to destroy their, their idols, to destroy their historical monuments? What's been the impact of that within society, you know for example the French Revolution or the Cultural Revolution? Can you talk about some of the implications of attempting to do that within a society?
2: I think that uh, historically, when you look at the French Revolution or the Cultural Revolution in uh, China, this, uh, this concept of trying to go back to a, a mythical year zero, you see it in uh, Fahrenheit 451, the, uh, the Ray Bradbury novel. There's uh, a lot that you lose, um, a lot of uh, tradition, a lot of uh, historical memory, a lot of sense of uh, custom, uh, and the way that people genuinely live their lives—you know—all of that is uh, is done away with in some, you know, puritanical utopian attempt to create the perfect society, which, as we know uh, from the fact that they have to be created from human beings, cannot exist. So it's uh, it's totally tragic when you see these vicious totalitarian, usually attempts to erase history. I'm not saying that that's really what uh, the woke culture is trying to do now. I don't believe that's the case in, uh, in England. You know, they're, they're attempting to uh, alter the way we look at history, but they're not uh, attempting to uh, rub it out altogether. But I would much prefer where the, the, a statue being pulled down, for example, if it were put in context, if there were a, a board beside it explaining why it was put up and the negative sides, if necessary, of the person's life and so on. So much better that. And also so much better to put up more statues. You know, there should be many more statues in uh, in London and England to women and to people of colour and to people who are disabled and so on. You know, uh, glorifying their lives. You don't have to drag down statues. It's much better. They're beautiful things. They're they're marvellous public furniture. So let's put up more statues. I'm I'm always delighted to see when uh, when that's being done.
1: And finally, you've talked a lot in this interview about evidence-based history, you know, about remaining objective, about approaching a subject with a sort of blank slate and letting the evidence drive your conclusions. What do you say to, to those who disagree with you, who might accuse you of being a sort of activist historian, about you know, you've got very strong opinions, and they might argue that you, know, you have those opinions and you sort of try and make the facts fit your own viewpoint?
2: I've never once done that. Literally, you know, I, I uh, when I sit down and write a book, uh, which I uh, do with all of the evidence that I've managed to produce, if something completely goes against something that I believe, I still stick it down. You know, I, I've, I've done that with all of my books. I've never allowed my political views to colour my book. That would be a crime against objectivity. So, yes, I'm sure that I have been criticised for for doing that. But the thing is, if you have a a pure and clean conscience like mine, um, Stephen, uh, you don't let it uh, keep you awake at night.
1: Thank you very much, Andrew, for joining us. That was brilliant. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know via the Apple Podcasts app.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more